Welcome to CareCast, CareNet's podcast on family, faith, and life, with me, Vincent DiCaro, CareNet's Chief Outreach Officer, and Rollin Warren, CareNet's President and CEO. In this episode of CareCast, we're going to be talking about the confirmation of Judge Gorsuch and what his confirmation means and doesn't mean for the pro-life movement. We'll also talk about an amicus brief that CareNet filed in a Supreme Court case dealing with freedom of speech for pregnancy centers. And finally, we're going to talk about a new international study on cohabitation, its effect on children, and why it matters for the pro-life movement. All right, Rollin. Well, we are back for another episode here of CareCast. It is spring here in beautiful Lansdowne, Virginia. Yes, spring has sprung. It has. It's, it's beautiful out, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel like a lot has happened since mm-hmm. the last time we yes we did this yes um, and so there's there's a lot for us to talk about today because it was a winter of our discontent <laughs> it was yes, uh, and now now that spring has sprung there I I think there's a couple of pieces of good news that we could share yeah um, although of course always with some qualifications and caveats as they say mm-hmm. so first piece of good news is uh, the confirmation of Judge Gorsuch yes. Um, who I guess, uh, you know, in a sense is being categorized as a pro-life uh, judge who's been uh, nominated and confirmed uh, and now sitting on the Supreme Court. Yes. Uh, so it's certainly a cause for celebration, right? Absolutely. No, it was, it was certainly one of those uh, issues that was uh, very, very important uh, uh, during the election. And I think for a lot of people, you know, uh, had a, a significant impact on how they decided to vote and, mm-hmm. and, and things of that nature. And um so uh, yeah, we're 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 certainly excited that um, uh, a judge who you know has more of a life affirming record mm-hmm. uh, was uh, was nominated and confirmed. Yeah, so I think it's good stuff. Yeah, life affirming record, and I think it's just a life affirming perspective based yeah. on some of the things he's written and said over the years. And so there's certainly a reason for hope there. Um, but 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 yeah, of course. We, <laughs> I know we we always have to pour a bucket of cold water on things. Yes. I guess to to a degree. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think there's um, there's a danger in a mm-hmm. certain sense of the pro-life people, pro-life movement, pro-life organizations becoming complacent, yes. thinking that we've sort of already won now that we have a Supreme Court justice who's who's presumably pro-life, um, but we can't get complacent. Yeah, and I, I think that's really important, and I think that is the temptation for for folks to kind of have that view. I mean, certainly it's a you know it's a it, it, it's a first down. It's not a touchdown. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a series of other things that need to happen around the life issue. And I think one of the uh, pieces that uh, was noted in a recent survey of the Republican National Committee, uh, they asked uh, uh, registered Republicans about their priorities. And the life issue and abortion wasn't in the in the top category. It wasn't even an option given what, what, on the survey. It wasn't even an option given on the survey. So, so it, it begs the question, has, has the Republican movement, or the, I'm sorry, the Republican Party sort of already moved on from the life issue yeah. in this survey that they just yep. sound out? Because they didn't even give people the option of picking abortion or life as one of the answers that they could give for something that they care about. Exactly. And that's in the platform. Right. <laughs> so it would seem yeah. to me that the issues that you'd be talking about would be the ones that were in the platform because these are the things that you ran on. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me that if you didn't include it, you'd say, well, we've crossed that out. We've done that. And, and we know that although this is a good first step, it is just a first step. Yeah. And there's certainly more that needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it certainly it really just rebalances the court for one thing to yes. where it was when Justice Scalia uh, passed away last year. And so, um, and then the other you know caution that that I think folks need to look out for, just from purely a Supreme Court perspective, mm-hmm. is that there have been lots of you know quote unquote pro life justices who have been 
uh, nominated or I should say actually put on the court in the past by Republican pro-life yep. presidents yep. who have once they've actually gotten on the court, they've actually made decisions that you know went against what you would consider to be pro-life uh, decisions and so have made court sort of, I guess, what you could call pro-choice yeah. decisions when, when they're on the court. Um, and it never has worked in the opposite direction. I, yeah, I can't <laughs> think of a single case where it's worked in the opposite direction where someone who didn't have that perspective had an epiphany and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. So yeah, yeah it seems that those that are sort of locked in on the, on the pro-choice side tend to be locked in and tend to stay there. But mm-hmm. uh, from time to time, certainly too often. Uh, those that have come onto the court with a pro-life perspective over time sort of migrate uh, to a, a pro-choice perspective or, or some of their resolve erodes over time. And so we got to be praying about that mm-hmm. and um, we, have to be, we have to be di- diligent. And the other thing which I think is significant is that, you know, even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, you know, state laws will still allow abortion. I mean, that's what happened prior to Roe v. Wade being decided, right? The states had certain points of view. New York State, California were very, very liberal in terms of abortion. And uh, certainly uh, there will be issues that will still need to happen in the states. And so you need a a groundswell of of grassroots support at the state level um, Mm -hmm. uh, in the the eventuality that Roe v. Wade is overturned. Right. Yeah. And and uh, one of the ways that really helps me sort of think about this, and and we actually might have talked about this in one of our previous podcasts, was – this uh, notion of supply versus demand. Sure. When, if abortion were to become, I mean, Roe versus Wade gets overturned, and even let's just say every single state in the country also makes uh, mm-hmm. abortion completely illegal, which is very unlikely for that to happen. And even if it did happen, it would take many, many years. But let's say that it did become illegal. Basically, what that would do would would cut off or reduce the supply for abortion. Right. But it would do very little to nothing to change the demand for abortion. Right. So think about prohibition, right? Prohibition yep. cut off the supply of alcohol by making it illegal, but right. people still wanted alcohol and it right. caused a lot of problems. Yes. And so similar things could potentially happen around the abortion issue where we could reduce the supply and then think that the problem has quote been solved. Right. But as you've pointed out on several occasions and I kind of steal this from you all the time is that overturn, you know, making abortion illegal wouldn't outlaw unplanned pregnancies. It wouldn't outlaw sex outside of marriage. It wouldn't outlaw poverty. It wouldn't outlaw relationships, pro- relationship problems. All these yep. things that create a demand for abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that we we still need to be focused against that. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, certainly from the way we talk about it a lot here is you know the, the compassionate advocacy as opposed to compassionate care. You know, so uh, advocating for uh, abortion laws to be overturned or restricted in some way, shape, or form is really, really important. Uh, and, and we need to continue to do that. But the reality is that the advocacy always points to care. So if you're doing personal advocacy and you're saying, look, you shouldn't have an abortion, and the person says, well, what should I do? Well, you would point them to care. Well, you visit a pregnancy center. You know, you get support from your church. You get support from your family, those kinds of things, adoption agency, a maternity home, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, and so if the advocacy uh, issue went away, in other words, there was no law that needed to be advocated against, again, you still are going to need the care side. And we mm-hmm. have to be focused, and obviously that's a care net's a sweet spot. That's what we do. Yeah. It really focus on this compassionate care side in terms of helping pregnancy centers be able to do uh, the amazing work that they do. And, and and more recently, also helping churches be able to establish a, a life-affirming ministry within their, their church called Making Life Disciples, which is a key, key uh, resource that we have. And we're trying to inspire churches to ha- have, a, have a ministry on site to help equip those who 
with who are at risk for abortion mm-hmm. and, and to reach out to them with compassion, hope, and help. Absolutely. So so we can reach out to them with compassion, hope, help, and discipleship mm-hmm. uh, for men and women who are at risk for abortion. So Yeah, absolutely. So in some ways, and I guess in an, sort of an ironic way, mm-hmm. uh, the need for the, the sort of work that CareNet does, this kind of you know ministry to people who are considering abortion, in some ways actually becomes even more important yes. when there are fewer legal abortion options available for women. Because the question then becomes, where, where are they going to turn now? And we need to be available and ready and waiting yes. um, and ready to help those women and give them, the, give them what they need. So, in other words, how do we overturn Roe versus Wade in our hearts yes. while we're waiting for it to be overturned in the courts? Exactly. And, and frankly, you know, our, our hearts are more significant, which is going back to the alcohol issue to some degree, if you think about it. I mean, so, you know, if, if someone had an, an alcohol problem, you know, and, and that was one of the things that kind of caused prohibition to uh, be enacted to begin with because of just the, the, the rise in alcoholism, drunkenness, and the impact that that had on women and children and families and that kind of stuff. Um, if that person remains an alcoholic, <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, there's still going to be an issue uh, mm-hmm. once, 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 uh, uh, the the law was overturned or whatever. Mm-hmm. So really, yeah. it's a hard issue, yeah. and that's really what we deal with. And mm-hmm. that and we re- acknowledge that that's the hardest issue, and things are hard issues. But we also know that true transformation only comes uh, when you work from the heart, and that really is our perspective. Absolutely, Good. and that, that's actually a great great uh, way way to transition into the next topic I wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is that Karen has just filed uh, an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, yes. um, for a, a Supreme Court case. Yeah. Um, in support of an organization called the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, or NIFLA. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are supporting NIFLA's uh, petition to have a a, a lower court case uh, reversed, the decision of a lower court case reversed, uh, based upon some regulations that were were passed in California. So the California passed a bill called the Reproductive Fact Act, Mm -hmm. which essentially targeted pregnancy centers and only pregnancy centers, um, requiring them to post notices uh, on their premises about the availability of state-funded abortions um, and to also make sure that they tell everyone who comes into their center, regardless of what kind of services that they were looking for, that the one, and for the, for the ones that don't provide medical services, that they don't provide any sort of uh, medical services. So the, the non, non-medical pregnancy centers were also given that additional requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And also that, yeah. that they, you know, I think they're supposed to provide also almost like a referral. Right. A list of uh, places where the person can access uh, an abortion if they, if they want one. Right, so exactly. So you're really, in a, in a sense, marketing the state is sort of requiring pregnancy centers to market for abortion clinics. Right. So ostensibly, yeah. Yeah. you know, if the person didn't know where to find an abortion, mm-hmm. our pregnancy centers become billboards right. for abortion providers, right. which is right. ironic. Sort of an odd. An yeah, odd. It's just, it, it just is ridiculous. And in contrast, obviously, they're not telling Planned Parenthood right. to say, look, we don't provide services for folks who are at risk for uh, uh, an unplanned pregnancy, have an unplanned pregnancy rather, rather, rather and are facing obstacles to bringing their child into the world. Right. And we, we're not in that business. Right. So it really is interesting because that is a reproductive issue too. Right. Uh, so it's only a one-way way, uh, argument and, and, yeah. and one-sided approach to this that's, that's not balanced even from that perspective. Yeah. And, and for those reasons, there are actually two very compelling reasons from, yeah. a, from a legal perspective and a constitutional perspective as to why... Uh, these regulations need to be overturned, 
and the decision of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals needs to be reversed. And that's, one, that it's actually a violation of the freedom of, freedom of speech, yes. and second, that it's a violation of freedom of exercise. So let's just quickly talk about the freedom of speech issue. So I think when most people think about freedom of speech, they say it's the freedom to kind of say whatever you want to say. Yeah. But there's another side of that coin, which is the freedom to not say what you don't want to say. Absolutely. And that's called compelled speech, when right. the state is basically requiring you to say something that violates your conscience or simply that you just don't want to say it. You shouldn't be forced to express ideas that you don't want to express. And that's exactly what's happening here in this case. Mm-hmm. And so from that from that perspective, we're we're appealing to uh, the court to overturn to overturn that that decision. Um, and the second reason is freedom of exercise. And so uh, and that's freedom of the exercise of, of religion. Mm-hmm. And specifically the uh, um, freedom of exercise uh, protects religious organizations from being essentially targeted. Right. And if you actually look at the way this Reproductive Fact Act was yeah. was worded, um, it was just very carefully worded to make sure that the only kinds of organizations that would have to go fall under these regulations would be pro-life pregnancy centers. Yes, which, so, are, which are religious in, in nature. Right. It, which, which is clear. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so really it was, you know, basically organizations that, you know, put, you know, tried to basically help women not have abortions. Like... <laughs> <laughs> so they just worded it in such a way that the only people that would be penalized by these regulations would be would be pro-life pregnancy centers. Um, and, and that that's clearly unconstitutional. And, and I think, you know, the, the really interesting thing again about this is that other types of organizations that offer the same exact kinds of services right, right. that pregnancy centers offer, yes. like hospitals – are exempt from these regulations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so yeah. the, the way the, the amicus brief, and you can find this on our website at care-net.org, the way the amicus brief said it, basically yeah. stated it was that essentially anyone who walks into your pregnancy center, if, if by some chance they happen to want some services that are offered by some other kind of organization, such as an abortion clinic, you need to make sure you're required by law to tell that person, how to get those services, where to get those services, what those services Absolutely. are like, et cetera, which, again, is just a completely arbitrary violation of free speech. So. No, a- a- absolutely. And I, and I think the other thing, too, is, you know, part of their argument is saying, well, you know, abortion is a, is a, is a legal right, mm-hmm. which, of course, it is in, mm-hmm. our, in our country. And as a result, mm-hmm. you know, you should be forced and compelled to mm-hmm. help people um, access that, which is a legal right. right. And, you know, one of the things I thought, because we, we talked about, you know, the uh, prohibition and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, sort of the alcohol thing, because I, I thought about this, is it would be analogous to um, Alcoholics Anonymous or an organization like that being forced to tell people when they come in how to get access to alcohol. You give them a list of bars. You say, we don't serve alcohol here, here, but we're going to provide you with a list of bars, right? (laughs) Right? Because it's essentially the exact same argument. Yes, abortion is legal, and we're trying to encourage people to consider the consequences of abortion and not, quote, exercise that right. Right. Alcohol is legal, Mm -hmm. and they're trying to encourage people, right, right, to... Not not to like have a little bit of alcohol, mm. but to have no alcohol. Right. right. Not exercise a right. Mm. Why? And in both cases, why? Because we look at abortion, we look at the consequences for the person, we look at the consequences for their family, the child, the unborn, for society at large, and we say, you know what? Even though this is a legal right, mm-hmm. we're trying to encourage you to not exercise this legal right because of the consequences for you and for others. Mm. Well, what's the same thing with alcohol? Why, why do they want them to not exercise it? Well, they look at the person in terms of what happens to them and the consequences and all those kinds of things. Even though 
at the time that that person takes the drink, the person thinks it's a really great drink, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and if you think about talk to anyone who has an alcohol problem, mm-hmm. at the time that they take a take a drink, mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of relief that I've got this drink in me. Mm-hmm. But over time, what happens? Mm-hmm. Regret. Mm-hmm. There's a crossover point, right. and that's when that port when that relief starts to go down, and the and and the regret starts to go starts to go up. There's a crossover point where that person is in a crisis. And you have the same kind of dynamic that you see uh, with the abortion issue as well. So basically, you'd have to, again, and and certainly here's the reason why other people should care. Because Mm -hmm. if this goes through, Mm -hmm. the state actually could go to Alcoholics Anonymous, which, by the way, also has a religious motivation. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. one of the 12 steps, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Talks about God, the higher power, the whole deal, Mm -hmm. right? Often these programs are offered through churches. Mm -hmm. Could actually go to them and say, you know what? This is a legal right that people that should have access to, mm-hmm. and and we're going to compel you. Mm-hmm. We're going to compel you to p- promote mm-hmm. Budweiser and all the other alcohol places. And, 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 and all the bars. even more than that, we're going to we're going to we're going to also, if you can't afford to buy yeah. alcohol, we're going to tell you about some ways that you might be able to finance your addiction. Exactly, and that's basically what this law is forcing pregnancy centers to do. Absolutely. Um. It, yeah. It it really is. It really is sort of insane, and the fact that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Let this law go through is really just well. It, just, it, it really shows that it, it's 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 advocacy, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of masquerading as sort of judiciary. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it mm-hmm. really is, and, mm-hmm. and and it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And certainly, we're hopeful uh, and prayerful that uh, that uh, the court, the Supreme Court, will will yeah. overturn this and 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 rule in in, in the favor. Yeah, of, and and you know that, and and, and to, to your point about you know the church could you know the state could then go to Alcoholics Anonymous, but you know what, pro-choice people actually should yeah. be very concerned about this too, because this could mean this would set a precedent that other states, maybe not California certainly, but maybe more conservative, politically conservative states could actually start going to Planned Parenthood and compelling them to say and do certain things yeah. that would quote violate their conscience. That's right, and, and so really. Everyone <laughs> should be against yes. these sorts of compelled speech yeah. regulations that really are are the state Excellent essentially ex- the state basically taking sides on a political debate and telling people that they have to say certain things yeah. that are in conformity with what we think. Um, being we being the state. So really yeah. dangerous stuff, and we're just hopeful that the Supreme Court will overturn that. We are. We're hopeful and prayerful. Yes, Great. absolutely. All right, the last thing we're going to talk about, Roland, uh, you know, we, we've often talked about how this is a podcast that doesn't just talk about pro-life, but pro-abundant life. Yes. And so we, we like to talk about the family here um, mm-hmm. at CareNet. Um, you and I, of course, come from our background at the National Fatherhood Initiative. We, we both came from families. <laughs> we, both, we both came from families. We, yeah. Half families. Uh, half families. Like families. Yes, we all all of the above. Yes, absolutely. And so in, the, in that spirit, mm-hmm. um, there was a brand new – enormous international study that was done about cohabitation. Mm-hmm. Okay? So for, for those of you, our listeners, who, who don't know, cohabitation is uh, the, the state of essentially living with somebody mm-hmm. in a sexual relationship but not being married to that person. Right. Okay? Exactly. Not having a habit that somebody else has. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. No cohabiting. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's a relatively modern phenomenon. Basically, in the 1970s, it started to sort of become acceptable in our culture. So it's really about a 40-some-odd-year 40, 40 phenomenon in our culture where cohabitation has been uh, something that's even you know, a thing, as, they, as the kids say. Mm-hmm. Um, but what this study found is just absolutely sort of fascinating in some ways and maybe surprising depend on, depending on who you are. But what it actually found – and oh, and, and really importantly, it was actually led 
by uh, Bradford Wilcox at the University of Virginia and a team of other researchers at universities uh, such as Georgetown University. So Lori DeRose, who, who is uh, a pro- professor of sociology at Georgetown University. So mm-hmm. these were just top-notch researchers from, you know, universities, some of the best universities across the country. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't, you know, some sort of, you know, pro-life play or pro-family, yeah, yeah. family values sort of play. This was this was a robust university-led study. And what it actually found was that uh, across the world that uh, marriage provided more stability for children than cohabitation, basically in, in essentially every country that it looked at. And what that basically means is how did, how did they define stability for children? And they basically asked a very simple question. They looked at families where uh, a child was born while the parents were married to each other mm-hmm. and families where the child was born when the parents were just simply living together and not married to each other. And then they asked, when that child reaches reached 12 years old, mm-hmm. was that child still living with both of their parents? Mm-hmm. And the really, I think the, the real thing that for me at least really turned this study into something that was very, very significant was that in Europe, the least educated married families – had more stability than the most educated cohabiting families. Right. So basically, yeah. So basically what they found was uh, where even in places where cohabitation is widespread and culturally acceptable, marriage is a more powerful predictor of family stability than parental education. Yep. So you take the most educated cohabiting couples Mm -hmm. and the least educated married couples and those least educated married couples are more stable and provide more stability for children. Pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Pretty amazing. And, and, and of course, we, we talk all the time you know, in our culture, in our government, and various other places about children and how children are our future. And they're messengers that will go to a future that we never see and all these poetic things that we say. And, of course, for that to happen, we want them to have stability. Mm-hmm. And marriage is, is one of those key elements, in fact, the key element that leads to the, uh, the stability of children. And the lack of marriage is one of the key elements that leads to instability for children. So this is an amazing finding and really supports, obviously, the work that you know, we do at CareNet in terms of talking about not just being pro-life but being pro-abundant life and really talking about the fact that you know, being pro-abundant life means that you are focused on the family, trying to help people facing pregnancy decisions, not just bring their child into the world, but also whenever possible, as much as possible, to create a high-quality, low-conflict marriage and and, and ideally a God-honoring marriage with a basket to support that child, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, long-term. And so this is really important finding and really certainly ties into the philosophy that we have here at Karen and why we we are pro-abundant life, not just pro-life. Yeah, no, that's great. And and, and it leads leads into two very specific things that at least I could think of off the top of my head in terms of why this matters to, you know, Pro-life, like why should pro-life people care about cohabitation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, you know, 85% of all abortions are among unmarried yep. women. Yep. Um, and there is, I think, often a misconception in our culture that cohabitation and marriage are basically the same thing. Sure. You absolutely. know, cohabitation is, is marriage without the paperwork. Right. Or maybe without also the inconvenience of a lifelong commitment and all that other stuff and all the, yeah. you know. And so, but I think what, what we are responsible for kind of in our capacity as servants ministering to people who are, you know, facing pregnancy decisions is that we have to help them understand that cohabitation and marriage aren't the same thing. Yeah. That marriage is an institution that does provide that sort of stability that you can't find in any, any other type of family structure. Yeah. Um, and so we need to help kind of educate folks about that and really encourage them mm-hmm. around um, 
you know, I don't want to, you know, say that marriage is a magic bullet or anything like that. No. But it really is an extraordinarily underrated yes. and powerful institution that it would be we at our peril as a civilization or as yes. a society to forget just how important it is for for adults and children. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, from our work on the fatherhood issue, I mean, it's pretty clear that you know marriage is the best societal glue to connect fathers to their kids heart to heart, uh, because it, it connects fathers to the mothers of their kid heart to heart. And that that's the stability that we're that we're talking about, that creating that basket, that interwoven piece with the father and the mother united in marriage that creates the protective, the protective sort of net and basket, if you will, uh, that a, that a child needs. And, you know, it's always interesting to me uh, when people talk about cohabiting, that, you know, it's just another piece of paper. It's just like marriage, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's, and it, it's an interesting it's an interesting perspective. You know, I was on a flight some years ago and I was sitting next to a pilot and we started to have a conversation, and I talked to him about. Well, you weren't in the cockpit, were you? No, no, <laughs> not the pilot, a pilot. Oh, well, <laughs> am I not supposed to go in there? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay, I'll edit that's my why story. you were wearing handcuffs when you got uh, off the plane. But yeah. we don't need to continue yeah. the story. Right. Right. We can just we can just leave it there. Yeah, just, so yeah. a pilot. Okay, you were talking to a pilot. Okay. Unnamed pilot. Gotcha. Right. Good. And we started having this conversation about the flight simulator. And I said to him, I said, look, I said, man, that must be like truckloads of fun doing the flight simulator and everything. And, and, and he said, actually, no, it is incredibly stressful. I said, really? He said, man, you come out of that thing, you're sweating the whole deal. And I thought to myself, why is he sweating when he comes out of the flight simulator? Mm-hmm. And what I realized was that it has the difference between him viewing a flight simulator and me has to do with the, his commitment to being a pilot. In other words, I look at a flight simulator like it's a game. Right, right, right. So we crash, eh, we crash, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of mm-hmm. a thing. I push the you know, reset button and we go again. He looks at a flight simulator as an actual flight. Mm-hmm. And marriage is exactly the same way. See, cohabiting is not a marriage simulator mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. in cohabiting, you don't do mm-hmm. what you would do in a marriage mm-hmm. because you know you're cohabiting. Right, right. You know it's not a marriage. Yeah. You know it's not real. It's not a real marriage. So you don't make the investments in the other person in the same way. Mm-hmm. That's what we find. You don't make the sacrifices Mm -hmm. for the person in the same way because Mm -hmm. in cohabiting, what you're typically trying to figure out is when should I go? Like where's the point where Mm -hmm. I should push the reject button and Mm -hmm. just go? Mm -hmm. When should I go? In marriage, though, the question you're constantly asking yourself is how can I stay? Mm-hmm. How can I stay? How can I stay? What do I need to do to stay? Mm-hmm. One is a consumer thing, trying to figure out, well, is it, am I getting what I'm supposed to be getting out of this mm-hmm. thing? And another one is a covenant relationship, mm-hmm. which says, am I giving what I'm supposed to be giving? Mm-hmm. It's a totally different thing. So you can't practice marriage mm-hmm. yeah. in, in, in cohabiting. The, 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 the difference between them is not a difference in degree. It's actually a difference in kind. It, it's abs- two, yeah. absolutely well put. It yeah. is a totally different structure. Right. And as a result, and one structure, which the research shows clearly, is much more, mm-hmm. much more beneficial to children, mm-hmm. much more beneficial to couples, mm-hmm. and much more beneficial to families, much more beneficial to, to societies and communities, and much more beneficial to nations and obviously the world. And which right. is why we are very, very focused on on marriage as, a, as an important yeah. social institution. Yeah. And, and again, this was a yeah. global study that found that this was true yeah. across the world and pretty incredible stuff. Yes. Um, and, and just the last point I kind of want to make is, uh, you know, and this might be maybe a little bit of a, st- a stretch, I suppose, and you can disagree with me if you'd like. But um, it kind of struck me that, you know, the, the sort of the sort of cohabitation culture in our country, mm-hmm. which essentially is a an unmarried culture, 
um, could actually be, in a sense, contributing to the abortion culture. Sure. Because it's all – it's this mentality of these kind of um, non-covenant sort of relationships, um, non-permanent relationships mm-hmm. um, that don't have the level of commitment and and just uh, – permanence yeah. that we, we should be ascribing these things to. Um, and so it's all, for me, sort of part of a continuum of how you get to sort of an abortion culture. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the abortion culture and the cohabitation culture really rose up really at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it was the early 70s when all these ideas started to percolate in our culture, kind of the, the fruits of the sexual revolution, if you want to put it that way. And so, you know, I, I think it's just a, incumbent upon us as, you know, pro-abundant life people to really be advocating and educating around these sorts of things. So we talked about the, the ministry side, but then there is this advocacy side on this as well. Just educating folks um, about the real difference between cohabitation and marriage and how it really does yeah. impact the abortion issue. Well, absolutely, because I think one of the things that is pretty clear is increasingly in our society, things that are inherently covenant mm-hmm. are being viewed through the lens of consumerism. Mm-hmm. So you know, in terms of relationships and, and, and the sexual relationship, which is in God's economy, is designed to be a covenant relationship, is viewed as a consumer thing. Like, what can I yeah. get from her? What can I get from him? They give me enough or am I getting that kind of thing? It's like a transactional kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the same thing that's happening on abortion, because when you really think about it, what abortion is, is it's saying that I can have a covenant, excuse me, a consumer relationship with a child growing inside of me. Mm-hmm. Right. So a covenant relationship says I will do what I'm supposed to do regardless of what you do. In mm-hmm. other words, you say you you see your wife and she's pregnant. You don't say, well, if he has blue eyes or and then maybe I'll love him. You know, you kind of go, right. no, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do as a father, mm-hmm. regardless of what happens with this child. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. consumer is, well, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, provided I get what I think I deserve, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind right. of thing. Yeah. So abortion really is taking something which is inherently covenant mm-hmm. by design and by nature mm-hmm. And putting on a consumer mindset mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. looking at the child inside of you through a consumer mindset. Yeah. But that's also the reason why folks, when they have abortions, so often regret it because they realize that they've been deceived, that they've been tricked. Mm-hmm. Because you can't look at a child as a consumer from a consumer perspective, really. Not if you're right. a whole person. Right. Right. Eventually, right. Mm-hmm. like the prodigal son, you're going to come to your senses and realize that, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. here was mm-hmm. something that God designed bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that is inherently mm-hmm. covenant. Mm-hmm. And I was deceived. I allowed myself to be deceived that I could have a consumer relationship. And then there's the regret that mm-hmm. comes from that. And that's where that relief and regret cost crossover comes from. Mm-hmm. At the relief point, you're thinking about the child as, as a consumer, as just a consumable, a consumer, mm-hmm. a consumable, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And where the regret comes is when you reach that point where you realize, oh my gosh, the child was not a consumer transaction. Mm-hmm. It was a covenant relationship mm-hmm. and a gift from God. Mm-hmm. And I destroyed it. And that's when you have the regret that comes mm-hmm. in. So that's a great go. point. Well, yes. Uh, oh, gosh. Oh, geez, <laughs> we're done. It's cold in this room, but we're still sweating. Yes, it's, um, that was a, that was a lot to get out, but <clears throat> really, really great conversation. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, it, it actually just occurred to me that tomorrow is this fifteenth anniversary of when I actually started working for you. Wow. Isn't that kind of crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, sucker. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. And But I was going to say... You don't work for me. Right. You work with I, I work with you. But yes. yeah, uh, you know, but but despite, you know, despite the fact that I've known you for all these years, yeah. I, I still learn something every time I talk to you. So. Well, praise God. I learn from you too. And, and, it, and it's those, I think part of it is those new glasses that you're wearing. <laughs> I, I wish our listeners could see through yeah. the... 
the speakers, but yeah, those yeah. are some sharp glasses. Yeah, they are a bit fashionable. <laughs> yes. and now I can actually see what you really look like. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you haven't changed at all in the last 15 years. <laughs> good yeah. for you. I know, that's a good thing. All right, well, that wraps up our, our latest uh, CareCast, and we will definitely see you or hear from you next time. May God bless you daily as you serve him faithfully. Amen. <laughs>